So it was quite a few years ago, a lady came up to me and she asked me if I would visit her dad who was in hospital. Uh, he wasn't doing well and I think the whole family knew that it was maybe coming towards the end of his time and I think he knew this as well. And she, uh, understandably so, she just was, she needed to make sure that her dad knew Jesus Christ uh, before he passed away. And so she made it very, very plain to me. She's like, look, I've been praying for him for years. Like, this is it. He's going to die pretty soon. I, I need you to get in there. I need you to share the gospel with him. I, I need you to get through to him. I need you to get him saved. I need you to do something. Please, can you do that? And my heart went out for her. That's her dad. So I walked into the hospital room a day or two later. And um, he was obviously uh, there in his bed. And as I walked in, she quite loudly said to him, Dad, it's Pastor Alan. And to my surprise, this is what I heard. I'm not even joking you. What? What you bring a preacher in here for? I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him about any of that stuff. He was ticked. He was riled up. Not joking you, she began to walk backwards out of the room, <laughs> smiling, smiling at me. And she said, that's okay, Dad. Just have a little chat. And she, he couldn't see her, but I could see her. And she was like, <laughs> like this. And she's walking backwards, and she walks out of the door. And there, the two of us are standing there, it's like the perfect cocktail of agony and awkward for several minutes as we looked at each other and uh, the daughter is outside and she is delighted with herself that she has somehow smuggled a pastor into the hospital room thinking, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to close the deal. I'm going to go in there. I've got the silver bullet of salvation and I've got the magic wand of salvation and, uh, you know, no pressure, but have at it, go for it all as well. So I'm standing there, and fairly sheepishly, and I'll change his name, I said, Mr. Smith, I was wondering if, and he interrupts me, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> like, pretty blunt. I don't care what you have to say. And I stood there feeling like a child scolded. And then it struck me, and maybe this was the Holy Spirit, but it just struck me in the moment. I'm like, I've had enough of this. Like, go big or go home, right? I don't know if those were the words of the Holy Spirit or not. Uh, and so I set aside all my usual efforts to be nice and polite and maybe crack a little lighthearted joke to lighten the mood or any of that stuff. And I looked at him and I just said to him, okay, he's sick, he's in pain, he doesn't want to talk to me, he's being a bit of a jerk to me. I mean, he is, but he's dying. And I just, I was like, I'm just going to match his aggressiveness and his abrasiveness, and I'm just going to do the same thing to him. And so I looked at him, and I said, I just launched into it. I said, do you mean to tell me that in this moment of your life, right here, you know you're going to pass away soon, that you won't even listen to somebody for a moment, you won't even entertain the gospel, because you're going to stand in front of your maker, and you're going to have to give an account of your life. And he looked at me, and he went, no. So I ignored his no, and I just launched into it, and I just said, look, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. You need to repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and I walked out of the room. 
Now, I don't know if that's a happy ending. I have no idea. I don't really know what he did with the major problem in his life of sin and rebellion. And I don't know what he did with the invitation, albeit a pretty gruff one, to the grace and love of Jesus Christ. I know this. He died. Spurgeon says this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with their arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Church, I know you know this. I know that you know this. But it's like we don't know this. But I'm about to say it out loud, and you're going to go, I know that. But it's like we don't know this. This isn't important. This is ultimately important. The stakes are high. The stakes are high. They've never been higher. And Jesus says, go into all the world. And I just don't know that you or I go about our normal day feeling the weight of that. I don't know that we do. I think we get on with normal life. And I think we get distracted and we get occupied about all kinds of things. I don't know that you and I carry with us a sense of the urgent mission. I don't know that we carry with us a sense of heaven and hell and life and death. I don't, sometimes I do. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes you go to a funeral and it strikes you. Do you know that? You know that thought. I know that you do. You've gone to a funeral, and it strikes you, and you walk away, and you're like, man, okay, like, there, I, I can't deny this. Like, death is still running at around 100% here. There will come a day where I will not stand in front of you, and you will not be here. That's coming. And it's like we know that, but we don't know that. And here we are. We hold with us the words of life. We carry within us the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. This series that we're in is called This Is For You. Week number one, Pastor Eric, that's just a fantastic presentation, just the basics of the gospel. Last week, Pastor Wally, I think what we're entering into right now is we want to present to you, although there are many, some, I think, best practices in the gospel. And Pastor Wally was talking about hospitality. I hope your home and your lives are open to others this Christmas season. I hope this series, this is for you, I hope it stokes the embers. I hope it fans the flame. I hope it increases the temperature of this urgent, important, ultimately important mission and it's not that we're better than other people or that we know things that other people know or that they're wrong or that we're right. It's this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what this is. The greatest problem in this world today, it is at the root of every single other problem, is the problem of sin. It is the result of broken marriages and violence, of Anxiety and depression and theft and addiction and gossip and racism and sexual abuse and war and greed and corruption and lies and deceit. None of those things are from God. None of them. And at Community Church, we believe the gospel is good news. Amen? And when we stop the preaching of the gospel, well, then we're not really a church and we forget who we are. But it's not just Sunday morning and it's not just the pulpit. When we stop individually preaching the gospel and 
Take out of the picture this, you know, 30, 40-minute presentation where we go through Scripture. I'm talking about when we literally open our mouths and we share the grace of God with people in conversations. When we cease to do that, when, or if we never do that, then actually what we're doing is we're losing our way in, in terms of the purposes of God. Luke chapter 2, the shepherds receive an invitation, and the invitation is, come and see the Messiah. This is what it says in verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. There was their invitation towards the gospel. And so they say yes to that, and they encounter Jesus Christ as a child. And then they take the invitation that was given to them, and they simply give it to others. Verse 17 says this, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. If there is one word I could share with you today, a best practice of the gospel, it will be the word invitation. It may be the simplest of all of the ways and means in which we can carry and express the gospel to other people who need Christ. Invitation. It's one of the best practices of the gospel. What if a community church in St. John's and in Alma and in Mount Pleasant and online, what if we invited more people to be on the receiving end of the gospel this Christmas more than any other Christmas in the history of this church. What if we just did that? Why not? What if in 2024 we invited more people to all of our campuses to be on the receiving end of the gospel than any other year in the history of this church? What if we were on, on the edge of that as a church? I think that would be a wonderful thing. Maybe we could be like the shepherds. We received an invitation to come and see this child, and all we would do is we would say, I have to pass this invitation on to others so they can encounter what we have encountered. So here's the question, are you inviting people as a church? Are we inviting people? Think about your friends and your colleagues and your neighbors. Are you inviting them? I've heard it said that if you don't have a face and a name for your mission, and you don't have a mission, do you have a face and a name for your mission. There are two problems with this question of are we inviting, and I want to maybe ask you to feel the tension of this. There's two things. Number one is the priority of Jesus, and again, this is what we know, and I know that you know this, but sometimes we forget. The priority of Jesus, I don't know that there'd be anyone in any of our campuses that would say, well, that's not the priority of Jesus. No, we don't really need to do that that inviting people into a relationship with God is what Jesus did and what Jesus told us to do. And so we believe in that invitation. We simply do. We're like, yeah, we're, we agree with that. In fact, somebody once invited you. And so you know the power of that invitation. Maybe it was your parents when you were a child. Maybe it was when you were a teenager or in college or a grown man or woman. And somebody invited you and you know what that did in your life. And so there's something inside you that says, man, I ought to do that for someone else as well. This is the priority of Jesus, and I think for 99.9% .9 of followers of Jesus Christ or community church, we agree with this. But here's the tension, number two, it's the sales pitch. So we have the priority of Jesus, but we have the sales pitch. This is sometimes what it feels like. In this culture today, there are fewer things that people have disdain for than some Christian trying to convert me. I watched a video about a week or two ago on YouTube, and there was a gentleman. Man, he was 
gifted and appropriate and wise and attractive with his words. He was at a college campus. It was like a summer's day, and he was surrounded by, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80 uh, college students, and there was an open mic, and he was just an incredibly wise defender of the gospel, and people could come up and ask him anything, brave stuff, and he was, he was ready for the task. He was doing great, and this guy walks by, sees this thing, and he's like, what? On my college campus? How, how can this be? And he grabbed the mic, interrupted a lady who was asking a legitimate question, and he was just like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Like in this day and age, are you telling me you're on my college campus telling us that we're sinners and that we need Jesus Christ? I mean, he was like, this is ridiculous. This is ludicrous. That's the culture that we live in. How do you place an invitation into that sometimes agony and awkward cocktail where it feels like, I don't know if the words that are coming out of my mouth are right or if they feel cheap. It feels like product placement. It feels like I'm peddling Jesus somehow. We like new life. Thank you, Lord, for that, right? We like forgiveness. Oh, thank you, God, for that. But I didn't know I signed up to be on God's PR team. I didn't know I was in on the marketing department for Jesus Christ, because I like the new life and I like the forgiveness, but I'm not really into the marketing thing, thank you very much. I don't want to come across, I don't want to come across as some kind of pyramid scheme. Now, what God has done in your life and in my life, I think we would say is legitimate, and that God is changing us and transforming us, that what He has done is very real and it's very deeply meaningful for all of us. But look at what we're facing. I'm telling you right now, today, in all of our campuses, you're walking out these doors into a pluralistic untrusting, skeptical, spiritually open, but religiously suspicious intellectual environment. And it feels like we're doing this sales pitch, and we're not so sure how to do that. And we're worried that, look, my faith is sincere. I know my heart is devoted to Jesus Christ. But what if my attempts at putting that into words somehow cheapens the whole thing? What if my words are inadequate to this glorious God that we know and we love? Everything else out there, every other message out there, and I mean every message, is so slick. It really is. It is perfumed up. It has got all of the razzle-dazzle attached to it. it. Everything that somebody's trying to sell you, it's built for your convenience and your happiness and your price range and your lifestyle. It's meant to satisfy self, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a terrible way. Same day delivery to dazzle you, to excite you, to meet your every whim. Is that how we're supposed to preach and present the gospel? I'm not so sure that Jesus sells the same. Compare that to actually the core message, because it's offensive. It just is. Jesus says, here's the gospel. Lay down your life. Repent of everything you've done wrong. Can you see how this is distasteful? Admit to the mess that you have made, that you are. Pick up your cross, carry it, and follow me. None of that is slick packaging. None of that is, that's going to meet your every little whim and address every selfish need that you have. And we're supposed to tell that and speak that in a way that is brimming with faith, that is genuinely hopeful, 
but it's also uncompromisingly realistic. Christians don't know what to do with it. We fall into a trap. In fact, I, I can think of two traps. The first one is we normalize Jesus. We're like, I don't know about this message. I don't know how that's going to come across to people who think that this is ludicrous. So here's what I'll do. I'll present Jesus in a way that is more tangible, more digestible, where just people are at. I'll do Jesus a favor. I'll normalize Jesus a little bit. I'll kind of take some of the edges off him. It's all good, man. Jesus is so laid back and cool, you can totally follow him, and no one will even notice. I think Jesus looks down from the heavens. Yes, thank you. That's exactly what I died for. You're crushing it down there. You're disguising me perfectly. Thank you. You can be a Christian and be totally normal. And in all seriousness, some of us are trying our best to prove that. You can be a Christian and find your spot in the middle of the pack where Christian you will never even be noticed. I think we've elevated being normal over being filled with the love of Jesus Christ, which is actually a radical kind of love. It's different to everything else out there. Here's the second trap that we fall into. <clears throat> we privatize Jesus. Because we live in a culture that does not really want to tolerate the gospel, certainly doesn't want anyone wagging their finger at them or preaching the gospel at them. So what we do is we maintain our faith. We're like, yeah, my faith is really important to me, but I'm going to retreat into the private sector. Have you ever heard this phrase? You do your thing, and I'll do my thing. That's a trap. We compartmentalize Jesus. Willing to speak his name in environments like this, in Alma and in St. John's and online in Mount Pleasant. Willing to speak Jesus' name, to sing Jesus' name, but nowhere else do we speak that name. Truth be told, we live most of our lives in these other environments. Why are we like this? Community church, can I say some difficult things? For all the other campuses, Mount Pleasant was deathly silent when I asked that question. Here's some difficult things. Number one, I don't ever want to be thought less of. I don't, I can never to be thought less of. We're living lives where we have perfected the art of never being thought less of. And number two, we want to never compromise our comfort. I know, you do, I know that nobody wants to hear that. We don't want to compromise our comfort, so we carefully integrate our faith into our lives and into culture in a way where we just fit into the middle and our comfort is never threatened in any way. And today, Christ wants to interrupt that in you. This idea of, I must be thought well of. I must be comfortable. Listen to Jesus himself in Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Woe to you. When everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I'll tell you why this message today is actually incredibly necessary. I found this statistic from the Barna Institute. This blew me away. 47% of Christian millennials, so the younger people in our churches today, these are Christian men and women who are in church, active in church, believe it is morally wrong to share your faith with a person of another 
worldview. Now just let that sink in for a second. I've got to normalize Jesus. I've got to compartmentalize Jesus. I have to privatize Jesus because it's morally wrong to share my faith with someone else of a different worldview. That is almost half of the young people in the American church today. Half of a younger generation in churches simply do not want to offend with the gospel. And so it becomes camouflaged, comfortable invitation. And no surprise, that becomes powerless. We all know too well that nasty picture of a Bible-thumping preacher. Fire and brimstone, oily hair, three-piece suit, sweaty preacher. I don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that guy. Nobody wants to be that guy. This generation looks at that and says, I, I can't be like that. This caricature of some Bible-thumping idiot that people are, it just becomes a repellent. They just stink in front of other people. And so we make all of these efforts to fit Jesus Christ into a sense of comfort. And it ends up becoming this mischaracterization of Jesus Christ. And when you go down that road, and when that carries you, and your thoughts, and your actions, Christ in you, and the gospel in you, becomes gagged. I just don't know what to say. I don't know how to invite. I know that's all tough to hear. So let me tell you some wonderful news. This is really good news. Church, more than you. More than you. More than community church. Do you want to know who is pursuing the lost? This is really good news. Do you want to know who is pursuing the the lost? That would be God himself. Praise God for that. Praise God. He is actually pursuing the lost. The Spirit of God is active right now. We think that this is all on our shoulders. Even worse, we think, well, unless I show up, God can't do anything sometimes. We think it's up to us. We think that somewhere along the way that the Son of God stopped seeking and saving the lost, that we need to go to places where God is not. And I would say to you today, and here's the good news, no, that's simply not the case. You don't need to feel that kind of weight. Our job is to join in where God is already at work. Now, we need to discern where that is, to look at where God is at work. Invitation is one of the best practices. We see it littered throughout the gospel. It's all over the Bible. Luke chapter 2, the shepherds that we looked at, they received an invitation and they simply gave an invitation. They went public. John chapter 1, Jesus invites Philip by simply saying, follow me. Philip is so excited, he goes up to Nathaniel. He says, look, this is the one. He's the, this is the Messiah. Here's the one that we've been waiting on. He's from, and he's, where is he from? What's his name? Oh, he's from from uh, Nazareth. What good can come out of there? I mean, he's mocking it. He's like, just come and see. That's all it took. There it is. Biblical invitation. Normal. Needed. Luke chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 22 tells this parable of a banquet where the master of the banquet invites all these guests to come to the feast and nobody will listen to him. Nobody will respond to an invitation. And the, the master's furious It's humiliating. Nobody comes. Everyone has their excuses. And he says, no, let me show you where I am at work. And Jesus makes reference to those who are poor in spirit. That should be your radar right now. 
who is poor in spirit? Who do you know in your life? And you would say, they are spiritually impoverished. They need Jesus Christ desperately in their life. And Jesus says, I want you to go out to the street corners and to the fields and laneways and hedges, and I want you to bring in the crippled and the weak and the forgotten. He says, I want you to go public where this invitation. That's where God was at work. And no one knew. No one expected that at all. In John chapter 4, Jesus has the longest theological conversation with anyone in the New Testament, and it is a broken, bruised, rejected Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman. The Jews believed that the Samaritans' worship was incorrect and that it was debased. No Jewish man would even step foot in Samaria. John chapter 4, it says this, Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Something compelling him to go to this place where it was indecent for him to go. This is the place that was furthest from the minds of the disciples, and yet this is the place where God was at work. This woman hears the invitation. You know what she does with the invitation? She just passes it on to everybody. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. When I was about 17 or 18, there was a gang of young people in the church, and we used to go out in the city uh, into the city center of Dublin, like busy, busy inner city. And we had a 10-question questionnaire survey thing. And we pretended that it was we were getting Im information from people, but we weren't. We were just giving the gospel. Would you like to take a survey? And lots of people would be like, no, I don't have time for that. Walk past me. Uh, and this is like, we'll go to a pedestrianized street where you just have, it's a huge capital, hundreds and hundreds of people passing you by every, every 60 seconds. And I cannot tell you how many times I would go through the end of the survey and I'd get to the back end of it where it was teed up to be like, so, like, what, now what do you do with this? Would you like to respond to Jesus Christ? And everyone would look at me and go, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't need that in my life. No, I'm fine. I, I know where I'm at with God. No, thank you. No, thank you. And one day, I was in Grafton Street in the city center of Dublin, pedestrianized street, hundreds of people, and there was this slightly older man, and I came to the very end, and I was like, so, w would you like to do something with this? Would you like to cross the line of faith? And he was like, yes, yes, I would. And I was like, really? <laughs> Are you sure? I'm like, I, I, I don't know if you want to do that or not. And he was like, no, I really think I need to. And I was like, okay, well, let's do that. And so I put my hands on his shoulders, and we bowed our heads, and we prayed. And he, he repented of his sins and he committed his life to Jesus Christ and all these hundreds of people were passing us by and there was this moment with the Holy Spirit and he committed his life to Jesus Christ. And I hugged him and he left and I've never seen that man again. But I've never forgotten that moment. I've never forgotten it. Let me show you the angle on this that's wrong. Well, it's a good job I was there, right, God? You're welcome. Right? I mean, I've got to carry this thing. Right? I mean, if I'm not there, God's not there. I better do this. I've got, got to show this in a way that works. And here's what the Holy Spirit said to me. Alan, do you want to know when I started my work in that man's life? Yes, God. Do you want to know when I came to seek and save this man? I started my work in him before you were born. You see, God just wanted me to join in where he was already at work. I thought it was all on me. We think it's all on us. We have to carry this weight. 
No, we got to see where God's already at work. God was inviting me into that place where the Holy Spirit activity was already taking place. This whole idea of, good job, I was there. No, Alan, I've been, I've been pursuing that man since before you were in the world. Jesus never tells us to pray that God would pursue the lost. Only that the found, you and I, would notice what he's doing and where he's going. And so we're excited to be in church. And we're excited to be in this place. And we look at a place like church on a Sunday morning. We say, this is great. God is alive and God is active in this place. But I would encourage you to think exactly the same about your office and your dorm room and your home and your neighbors and when you're grocery shopping and when you're hanging out with people. And this idea that you would assume that God is on the back burner. No. God, where are you at work? I want to wrap up with a story by a Christian speaker who was traveling and found himself quite jet-lagged and 3 a.m., Honolulu, at a diner. This is what he says. I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30. In the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It's a Christian man. It was a small place. They sat on either side of me. Their talk was so loud and so crude, I felt completely out of place, and I just wanted to get out of there. I overheard one woman before I left say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing you happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. You don't have to put me down. I was just telling you that tomorrow's my birthday. I don't want you to do anything. Why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? And when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the woman had left. And I called the guy behind the counter and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. She comes in here every single night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday, I told him. What do you say you and I do something about that? How about you and I throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow? That's a great idea, said the man behind the counter. I like it. That's a great idea. He called to his wife, who was cooking in the back room. He shouted, hey, come out there. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow is Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room, all bright and smiley, and she said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes, of all the people, she's just one of the nicest girls. Uh, nobody ever does anything kind or nice for her. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll be back here tomorrow at about 2.30. We'll decorate the place. I'll even bring a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name behind the counter. The birthday cake is mine. I'll make the cake. 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I'd picked up some paper decorations at the store. I'd made a sign out of a big piece of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend and we all screamed, happy birthday. 
Never have I seen in my life a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit, and a friend grabbed her to steady her, and we led her to sit on one of the stools right by the counter, and we all sang happy birthday. And at the end, as the singing came to a close, happy birthday to, her, to you, her eyes moistened, and then the birthday cake with all of the candles were carried out, and she just lost it, and she started to weep. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he ended up blowing out the candles. And then he handed her a knife. He said, cut the cake, Agnes. Agnes, come on, cut the cake. And Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, if it's all right with you, I mean, if it's okay, if kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay? If, can I keep the cake for a little while? I mean, is it okay if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged. He, sent, he, he answered her, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I, she said. And then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street, a couple of doors. Can I take this cake home and I'll be right back, honest. So she got off the stool picked up the cake, carried it like it was the holy grail. She walked towards the door, and as we all stood there motionless, she just left. And the door closed. We all stood there in stunned silence, not knowing what else to do. I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more of a strange thing to do to lead a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But just in that moment, it felt like the right thing to do. And I prayed for Agnes, and I prayed for her salvation, and I prayed that her life would change and that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice, and he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those rare moments in my life when you say just the right thing at just the right time, I said to him, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Church, Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. He invites you. Actually, it's not even strong enough. He commands you. Did you know that? He commands you to get in on that pursuit. You don't have to own it, stress it. You don't have to wear it. God is ultimately responsible, but he invites you to join in with him where he's already working. And so I'm asking you this week, would you be so attentive to the Holy Spirit? I'm asking you to pay close attention to every interaction that you have, not just this week, but particularly this week, especially this week, to join with shepherds and a woman at a well and Philip and the disciples and the master of the banquet because Christmas Eve in particular is ripe. It's just some weird time of the year where people who would normally never go to church will just go to church if they're invited. They just will. Two weeks from now, Christmas Eve, a community church, We'll have 11 services in our three campuses and online. We have beautiful invitations that are at the door for everybody as you head out. Would you take one? But here's the thing. It's not for you. It's for you to give to somebody else. Some of you, you might want to take a little handful. Maybe you need three or four or five or six. Take them. Use them. Give them away. Church, I love you. 
God bless. Have a great week.